Welcome to another episode of Go Out and Talk to Strangers. I'm Adi, the Nomad Architect, and this is a place where I'm sharing with you ideas and inspiration, hosting founders, entrepreneurs, and extremely talented people to share their experience with us. And today we have Todd. Hi, Todd. Hi, howdy. Hi. Todd is a three-thinker, award traveler, and an award-winning architect, and I'm very, very excited to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, thanks. Uh, today we will talk about his insights for tra- from traveling the world and how his journey led him to design one, one of the most fascinating projects in Fogo Island, Canada. Um, so Todd, let's go a bit back and talk about your background. Um, you grew up in Gander, Newfoundland, Canada, right? Yep. Yeah. And nowadays you're set in Norway. So what happened there? Yeah, I actually left Gander uh, when I was 15, turning 16. Mm. So it's like, uh, and I just turned 50, so it's 35 years ago. So and what happened in the last 35 years, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a strange story. And um, some ways a bit of a dream that come true in a way. And when I was 15, uh, we moved because my dad worked with an airlines and they, they had to close down and move their, their headquarters to another place in Canada. So we ended up moving to Nova Scotia. And that was, a, that was kind of the best and worst thing that ever happened in my life, actually, because I was ripped up from my roots. Um, and they always joke that Newfoundlanders, like people from Newfoundland, how do you recognize them in heaven? It's, they're the ones that want to go home because they're always like eternally homesick. <laughs> so it becomes a bit ironic that I, I become a nomadic architect. But my dad was always, uh, him and I were quite close and we traveled a lot all the time. We kind of lived through that. And he grew up in a small town, Newfoundland. And, and I was actually, I uh, could fly anywhere in the world for free. Uh, until I was 21. Yeah, and and, because he worked with Air Canada. And I used that to my advantage. And when I turned 21, um, I found out it was over, but I could fly until I was 25 if I stayed in university. (laughs) So that's (laughs) that's a bit of embarrassing to say. It's actually probably one of the three reasons I did a master's degree in architecture was actually to keep my plane tickets. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) So it was always, uh, it was very nomadic living and we, we, my parents were like hippies and they traveled. It was always really relaxed. We didn't know if we were going to get on a plane. We had to sleep in airports, uh, like three boys growing up. So I got used to, um, some people would say a chaotic life, but I would say it's just getting used to life. Life is not predictable and uh, I'm really, that's one of the things I learned as a kid is to... Mm, like keep peace in some kind of chaos in a way it's taken a long time that came from traveling I guess so Mm -hmm. and then when I went to I I was quite young when I I finished uh, I started university when I was 17 because I was started Catholic school when I was four and it was everything was I was like forced to be an adult really early and that kind of backfired a lot because I quit three universities before I was 19. I was just, I didn't really find my way. Mm-hmm. And then when I got into art school, it kind of everything caught on fire and was beautiful. It was, uh, it was like, um, 
it's one of the lessons I I learned as well is when you're not happy with something kind of it's your responsibility to get out of it change it or, or take responsibility for it so mm-hmm. I learned that those years and it paid off and sometimes you forget these things so Anyway, I'm in art school, and I did a bachelor's degree in town planning, environmental town planning. It was uh, one professor that studied at MIT, and another one, he was in, started Cambridge Seven Associates in Boston, but they were draft dodgers and left America. So we had this, these professors that were actually anarchists mm. at, at art school and kind of taught me a lot about design, town planning, and architecture was value-based. And one of the one of the professors, Bill Smith, actually died. And it was the last thing he said to me. It was I was about to travel to Europe for the first time when I was 19, and the last words he said to me was "seize the day." Like he he and he wasn't he was in his office, and I left his office as I was leaving, and I was about 20 meters away, and he yelled it out. He said "seize the day," and it was the last thing he said to me. Wow, that's very powerful. Yeah, like there's episodes in my life where, yeah, my father said something really important to me, like when he died. Like he died in my arms, actually. But the night before, the last thing I remember him saying to me was uh, to walk away. It was like an incident where it was a bit of trouble, and he he said it was like better like to walk away from it. And just sometimes you can't change people. So there's like lessons I learned growing up, and then I when I did my uh, bachelor's degree I worked as a uh, drawing with a town planner and a park planner in Halifax and I did I was doing I was like leaning towards more landscape architecture and I took a year off and I traveled that's when I started traveling to work first when I was doing my undergrad I took a, I went to the Rhode Island School of Design uh, as an exchange student and that was a super big kick because when I went there I thought I was like top student in the class and this would be easy, mm-hmm. but I got blown out of my, I got knocked on my ass like really quickly and then realized that, you know, the way I saw the world and the way other people saw the world are two different things, but maybe they're both right in a way. It was an awakener and then I really started questioning what I wanted out of architecture and landscape architecture. So the idea was to take a year off between my undergrad and my grad school and travel. I had this professor, Colgate Searle, uh, in the landscape architecture department, and I had another professor, Derek Bradford, who was both a landscape architect and an architect. And they got me in touch with a woman, Maria Aubach, who was a professor there earlier. She had an office in Vienna. So I went to Vienna, worked with Maria, and then I met a guy, he's actually a professor at Harvard now, a medical professor. He was working with Rob Creer. Architecture is not what I like at all but I really liked his lifestyle. He was teaching there at the university, his office in the university, he had a small team. So, mm-hmm. and then I went to Berlin. This is how I lived my life. I was at, I asked Maria Aubach, I said, where's a good place to move next? Cause I was only gonna be there for three months. And then she goes, well, there's work in Berlin or Barcelona. And I didn't know any, anybody in either place. Mm-hmm. So I took a chance, I said, here's what I do. I go to the train station and with my backpack, and whatever train comes next, that's where I'm going. And then I went in, and it was like there a few hours, and there was a train to Berlin. This is beautiful. Yeah, and then I went to Berlin, but in the middle of the night, going from Vienna to Berlin, you're freaking out, because like, <laughs> I don't know anyone, I have no money, and I have no friends there, I have no contacts. I had a portfolio, that was all I had, and that was like an analog book at that time. And mm-hmm. I got off the train, and 
I found a place to live really quickly. I was living with a skinhead guy that had guns everywhere in his apartment and scared the shit out of me. But um, <laughs> I was there for a while. And then I just started like knocking on doors to different architects. On land- it was mostly landscape mm-hmm. architects. That's interesting. And by Friday, I think I had five jobs lined up. And then I was in a position as like a 22-year-old to negotiate. Because mm-hmm. they really needed people at that time. And I could draw really well. And I worked with Hanalore Kossel, landscape architect. Mm-hmm. We were doing competitions with professors at the Technical University. We were also professors at the AA. And they had staff from all around the world. And I still have friends from that time. Hmm. So the world, you know, like the world, like you, like I didn't burn any bridges, actually. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of traveling, just connecting with people, changing ideas. Um, But tell me, what made you so interested in landscape architecture? Uh, I thought it was a bit more, it is, actually, I still think that. I think... uh, You can't really separate architecture and landscape architecture. That's true. But the problem is in the way the professions are set up that landscape architects put themselves in a position. There was like a joke that it was like landscape architects would come in and even like put the parsley around the pig yeah. type thing, like the greenery around like this big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So but there's a type of landscape architects like Gunter Voigt and SLA in Denmark. They actually take charge And Frederick Law Olmsted was like that. So like the great landscape architects, they actually guide their profession ahead of the architects. Yeah. So what I did actually, I went to Vancouver and I worked with Jane Durante, landscape architects. And at the end, it was great. But at the end of the summer or the eight months internship there, I counted just as a joke how many trees I drew on plans and how many parking spots I drew on plans. It took me like an hour. I drew twice as many parking spots as I did trees as a landscape architect. And I said, this is, this is not what I want to do. And I made a decision there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to Jane, and she goes, you're right. You know, you know, you, you know how to do landscape architecture. I think you'll be better off studying architecture. And I'd already got into landscape architecture school. And she asked me to call McGill University. Mm-hmm. And it was like one week before school started. And I did, and I said, you know, this is not a chance, but here's my fo- portfolio, sent it down uh, by courier. And they called me back like like an hour after I received my portfolio, and they said, we want you here. And then, because uh, I had a lot of good experience, and so uh, wow. I did a master's degree in architecture, and I focused on ecological mm-hmm. communities. And part of the thesis was actually studying ecological communities in Northern Europe, mm-hmm. and that's where my biggest travel experience ever came. I got three scholarships. It was enough for about three weeks to travel. Flew to Paris, uh, my dad's tickets, mm-hmm. and I had a friend in Amsterdam that I could stay for free for. So in order to save money, I hitchhiked to Amsterdam, and I didn't use any money, and I stayed with him for a while and did research at this place called Ecolonia near Utrecht. And I, my next project was in, in northern Germany, So I calculated, it was like five hours, and I had lots of time. The time was my commodity then. It mm-hmm. isn't now. It's, it's really weird. So uh, <laughs> uh, I had lots of time, so I hitchhiked to Kossel in Germany. And I didn't use it. I was, I was already like 10 days into the trip, and I was supposed to do it all in 21 days. And I hadn't used any money. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, if I keep doing this way of doing it, I can travel longer. And I ended up traveling for... 
it was March until October. Yeah. So that whole year and then ended up in Norway where I always wanted to be. And I ended up in an anthroposophical village, a bit like a kibbutz. Mm -hmm. They knew I was an architect. So they asked me if I wanted to build a patio. And I said, yeah, I can do it, but it'll take three weeks. And they did it and they paid me money. And then I actually had more money at the end of that three weeks than I started off when I left Canada. <laughs> so I just kept doing stuff like that. Yeah. And I made it to Russia and I ran out of money in Moscow. I had $390 left. Mm-hmm. And um, I called my dad and I said, okay, where's the nearest like um, Air Canada, the Star Alliance ones? And he said, well, SES flies out of Stockholm. And then he started laughing. He goes, but Air Canada flies out of Beijing. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, okay, give me half an hour. And I, and I went down, I bought a ticket on the Trans-Siberian train <laughs> and I came back and I called my dad. I said, I'm going to Beijing. And I, I, like, I, had, I had almost no money left and took the train across. And wow. Anyway, and I'm calling McGill and said, I'll be late. <laughs> and, and Derek Drummond, the director, he was born on the same day as me. He's a scorpion. And he said, you can do it, but... When you get back, you have to show the whole school your slides because this sounds like an amazing story. Yeah. Anyway, that was school, and I can briefly tell you how I got to Norway. I came back to Norway, and uh, it was like I did an ecological water treatment system in that kibbutz thing for free. I worked for free for my first year out of school. Like Money was never my motivation. It was more ideas, mm-hmm. and it's still that, actually. But I make... I do really well economically, yeah. but people don't see that. Like my motivation is always ideas and the money comes if you're, if you're interesting and people like we get paid to create mm-hmm. ideas. So, so anyway, I did this project, ended up working in Russia for three months, ended up in Norway. Yeah. And then I, you know, it's the, like a funny story I always tell, like I, I got an apartment on, like I started work on Monday, got an apartment on Wednesday and I met. The, the the mother of my kids on Friday. Wow. So, and then it all went from there. That's amazing. Okay, to, so to summarize this um, part of our talk, um, what would you say left a strong impression on you while going on this journey? Yeah, I love these questions. Um, like a place or a culture or a moment. So you mentioned the word strangers in the beginning of your talk and my dad was always telling me i think roosevelt said it it was like a it's a couple things with strangers there's one is like stranger is a friend you haven't met yet it's like a redefinition of a stranger yeah and then never underestimate the kindness of strangers like that's what i noticed there was like people that they did so much nice things for me mm-hmm. So at that age, at 22 years old, it was like 24 then, 25. Mm-hmm. It was a really good experience of the world because you're alone on your own, but there's great people out there. In the last few years, I actually, unfortunately, I learned the opposite in the last three or four years. There's some really nasty people out there. But I got lucky. I had a long ride. I had almost 50 years of great people around me. Um, and then the next thing I knew was like, Hitchhiking especially is like you're in a car, I don't know, like I grew up as a Catholic and you go in a confession box and you have to tell all your sins and then you're out of there. Uh, Hitchhiking was a bit like that. You get in the car, they know they'll never see you again. You'll never see them again. So you can talk about whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, You can get to some extremely deep, honest areas in conversations in those situations. 
So those are the things I learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is amazing. Yeah. You know, I used to hitchhike to university yeah. when I was a student. And um, every time I would go in a car, I'd ask the driver, okay, tell me one thing that I don't know. <laughs> That's like great. So I got to learn about geology, about wine tasting, <laughs> about like, I don't know, sometimes yeah. just about their life. But I think it's just fascinating. A little bit like you said, you know, in the con confession booth, where you have to, the chance to really confess and be very, very honest. Yeah, I think the honesty is the currency that I grew up with in Newfoundland. It was... Uh, <laughs> it's beautiful. And I noticed that like from when living in Russia as well, that was the only... That's why Russians and most people who grow up in communist countries are very direct. It was like the only currency they had. And once you get trust and honesty, that's mm -hmm. like a safety thing. And I, Newfoundland was like oh. that. You, you couldn't lie. Like... we. We do projects now in certain countries and there's like a culture of lying and then it's a, it creates this weird atmosphere. But like if you told a lie and when I grew up in Newfoundland, um, an hour later, everyone knew you lied and didn't say it. And then you lose your integrity and your integrity was your currency and your value and your like ability to for people to trust you. So it's a that's my only criticism of no, being a nomad. Like it's, I think there's a lot of nomads out there. I don't know it. Um, they hop from job to job and that, but there's, there, it's a form of escapism. If it's, if this is not true in all, every cases, but it's something nomads should be aware of. If you aren't facing up to your own reality and like deeper friendships at certain spaces, it's, it will add up to nothing in a way it will add up to a series of events and a lot of fun like number like the 39th country won't be any better than the 40th and so on and so on so there's you have as long as you're aware of that as you're a nomad then it is but i i think like this nomadic culture is full of mm -hmm. people avoiding responsibility and the worst thing is they're yeah, well, it really depends on your intention, I guess. Yeah, there's like, there's, there's both sides. Because I know yeah. a lot of nomads that travel. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people travel to connect with local cultures, yeah, either yeah. stay in their foreign bubble and just be very privileged. It really depends on your intention. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you always have to question your intentions. And that's what I, I, was, I was always doing. Yeah, and you know what? I, I want to address another thing you said about having a meaningful relationships which is something very important and actually one of the more, mm. I guess one of the most uh, meaningful experiences you can have in your lifetime. And yeah, it is a challenge when you're traveling a lot to create these kind of relationships. And that's something you have to be mindful of mm. when you choose this lifestyle. Uh, yeah, like in being honest with yourself and um, along the way, but this is an aside, like this one thing I'm very attentive of why I, when I want to travel, like, what is the reason? Is it to get away from something that it should be dealing with here? Yeah. Okay, so let's move, move on. Um, so one day you get a phone call from Zida. Um, please, I, I don't want to tell it, but it's your story. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's the story about the, how Fogo Island started. And it, the story is actually 13 years old now because uh, mm -hmm. in the time the inn is six years old. Like it's been open for six years. Um, Zita contacted me one month before my oldest daughter, Sina, was born. She's 13 right now. Um, and I was paddling kayak down the coast of Norway. And actually, I didn't believe what she was saying. 
So it was he wanted to work with culture and wanted to work with arts and tourism on an island that I can't, I, it was only an hour from where I grew up. My aunt lived there. I didn't believe it and it was embarrassing. So I Googled her an hour later. I said I'd call her back in a few weeks or a week when I was finished. But then when I Googled her, it was like, oh man, this is, this is a person that could do these things. She was doing philanthropy work in Africa. She was doing scholarships. And then, like my curiosity was just... Mm-hmm. How did she find you? Um, there was an article about me in the, the national magazine in Canada, the, the, the newspaper called Globe and Mail. I just did the Hourland Lookout um, mm-hmm. with another architect. And it was like it was kind of like getting known a little bit on the international scene because of that and a few other projects. And she bought that. It was called Architects New Rock Star or something like that because the rock is island, is Newfoundland. And everyone calls Newfoundland the rock. So I was like the... Okay. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. when she got on the airplane, there was like an Air Canada magazine, like ironically enough for my father and my brother worked. <laughs> where um, there was a list of the 100, uh, 100 most influential people in Canada to watch out for or something like that. And both articles started off with saying um, arch- Newfoundland architect living in Norway, mm-hmm. both of them. And she said, this must be the person. She had interviewed 30 architects, but she didn't connect mm-hmm. with them because they were coming... These things I know now because we talked a lot about. They they all they all came with answers before they asked questions. Mm. And one like me, I the door opened because I was from Newfoundland. Second door opened because I was from Norway, working on similar cultural, rural, natural places. Mm-hmm. Um, we were ten years apart. We we're both very ambitious. We had a lot of a lot of similar qualities with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, she went off. She left Newfoundland. She was fifteen. So did I. She became super mega successful. I was on my way to being successful. But both of us have this one common thing. We're extremely curious mm. of things and people. And I think she knew that. And we're both of us are extremely responsible. Uh, very proud to be from Newfoundland. And she saw qualities in me that she said, okay, here's a guy or a person that has as much to lose from this project if it fails as I do. So both of us, like, and we create an atmosphere and a team around it that, mm-hmm. like, anyone can say whatever because everyone was basically using it. So it was it was diplomatic in a way, but still guided with like soft hands. Mm-hmm. And we designed, we built four artist studios of nine, and then we built a twenty nine room inn. And mm-hmm. just the other day, the inn was rated as the number. Th- third hotel in the world and wow. the, the best hotel in Canada for the fourth year in a row so and I've, I've never ever done design a hotel and that's a lesson there like for people listening to this you know a, an architect doesn't have to design a good church or a good synagogue or a good school if they've never done it before you just had to look for an attitude she found an attitude in me and I found a client that that, that worked well. And then we found builders that worked well. Yeah, tell me about the process. Like all the way from the idea to the actual uh, project. Because you did had some unusual choices that I very much appreciate. Yeah, like uh, for example, it was a very open and uh, fluid process. Not at all linear. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit all, it was like 
No one knew we were, we didn't, we knew where we wanted to go, but not exactly, but we knew the attitude behind it. Uh, the studios, for example, the studio, we didn't know if there was a good builder on the island. There was like hundreds, there's 400 years of building tradition there. But in Newfoundland, there hadn't been anything really nice built in the last 50 years, like of quality, like this, there'd been modern stuff, this glass steel stuff, but nothing that really resonated the essence of like this hand built Newfoundland architecture that was being like squeezed out and flat, like you mentioned the flattening of culture. Yeah. Like Newfoundland was becoming Nebraska or whatever, like most cities in the world. For example, there's probably little, little communities in Israel mm-hmm. That have Starbucks now. They're yeah, the globalization. Yeah, yeah, in a bad way. Like you know, globalization is not a bad thing, by the way. N- not at all. We're like more connecting in the. Sh- no, not at all. I agree. It only becomes a bad thing when you are overlooking the culture and erasing the identity of the place. Yeah, just being not specific to your culture and your place. That's yeah. Like, you can still be global and do that. And, and learn you can learn a shitload like I'm learning a lot from anybody from everywhere and, and apply it to your own case so this is what we were missing so we built one studio to see if there was good builders there and these builders were amazing so it was like boom we did one and then we built the other three and we got this momentum and the same crew went on to lead the inn which went on it was just like we went fast and slow enough like i don't know if you make sense the, the speed was right mm-hmm. so and in most um, most projects people would say it went too slow the amount of planning and discussion we did we like we mocked up rooms we discussed everything um you know every wednesday we'd be on a call it was started off with like me z and a brother and then it grew to like 30 40 50 people at a time on those That's calls a lot of people there's a lot of stress. Um, uh, actually, I quit drinking alcohol. Yeah, like 10 years ago because of that. It was just like, I had to like say, okay, if I want to do this project well, have a family, have my health, I need to remove certain things. So it was like health decisions I had to make. And yeah, it was like I had to give everything and it had to be, it was like going to the Olympics for me. Yeah. And the process was, um, like Zita is like Zita and the people around her. There was a, it wasn't just me making this architecture. It was like they created such a healthy process where you're allowed to make mistakes. And I still kind of want to do that. Yeah, I guess we kind of miss it. <laughs> I guess we kind of miss the the ability, the ability to make mistakes, the ability to experiment while designing and not only do everything. Let's say. Mm. in the office on paper and then you go inside and you want to make some changes but it's too complicated but I think what what you did there was pretty unique Mm. and also the fact that most of the materials uh, are local right yeah almost everything's within like a hundred kilometers of there Mm -hmm. I think the windows are from Toronto and the bathtubs are obviously uh, from another place everything else is handmade and I think that's why the feeling of the place it feels like Newfoundland architecture, and that was why, like architecture in Newfoundland is actually handmade. And it was very, it was really similar to when I spent a lot of time in Morocco. Oh, I love Morocco. It's also there. The essence of Moroccan architecture is because it's handmade from that place, and a lot of people are forgetting this. Yeah, yeah. I think we can feel it. You know, as humans, we can feel is if something was made by a machine. 
or by hand. We can feel the amount, the amount of time that was invested in the item. That was like the time that it took to make it mm. in some level. I think this is why so many people are connected to handmade, yeah. to antiques, to crafts. Mm. Uh, so there's a guy showing me this door and he said that door took three years to make. And people don't do that anymore. So our relationship to time and architecture is, it's a bit weird. Like, I don't really like this thing that time is money. It's like, so our reevaluation with time, and this is like mm -hmm. back to the parallel with nomadic art. When I, I talked about nomadic architecture before, and I think architecture is a fast profession and architecture global profession. So in the nomadic realm, I think it's very important for architects, even though you're traveling around the world, you should find one place, maybe it's your community or one place, and put a lot of energy into it, even though you're working on projects all over the place. And it's another thing about time as well. Like I have one project now. Everyone's asked me when it's my personal project. It's like a peninsula I own like a half hour from Bergen. And everyone's like, when's it going to be finished? And, all this, and I... And every time there's a question about time, I say it's it's finished when it, it's it's taken it it's, has its own pace, and I've got so much joy out of that that it it goes fast and slow. But I find my own speed and and having some kind of relationship to slowness and fastness. Yeah. Um, you have to be very aware of that as well. Things do go too fast sometimes. Yeah, especially nowadays. Yeah. So. Luckily, the construction process and architecture is, is slow. What's what's problem with architecture now? The design process is too fast. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of buildings that are like half designed, but they take three years to build no matter what. But they're <laughs> not designed well enough. But then that, that mistake lives forever. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the challenge you had to overcome. Um, in this um, on this project in this collaboration between the global and the local can you share one mm, i think i have the same challenges as you do and other people like breaking into the profession have like in so there's opportunities to work everywhere and they're getting easier in a way at our time we didn't have zoom it was you know it was, it was really hard to communicate we started using webex luckily um so and then what i but a lot of the from the process there like we had weekly meetings at the same time i noticed that when we start projects now if we don't we're like running around trying to chase cats trying to get everyone to meet and use all week trying to get them to meet and then when you so so we actually for almost every project uh, the client gets a specific hour every week to meet with us and they can we're available uh, we usually check in for a minute sometimes it goes a little longer and stuff but like a half an hour check in every week on each project's been really helpful um mm -hmm. some of the people that we work together on fogo now we're working together on an uh, on a visitor center in um in maine with roxanne quimby the owner of Burt's used to be the previous owner of Burt's bees so we slowly like building up a, a small team around us who does what um uh, I think the idea of building prototypes really helped. Mm, I've done that in all my projects, especially working internationally, because there's like 
me explaining and drawing from here and over there. We built a lot of models where, you know, we had like maybe 200 drawings of the tower studio. But the carpenter, we built a model, we sent it to the carpenter, he built another version of it. He actually didn't have to look at the drawings anymore because mm-hmm. he understood the building enough. So there's like certain things like... <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, like analytic tools that are forgotten that, you know, the digital world thinks, yeah, we can just solve it and go on the screen. But, you know, these a lot of these carpenters are still analog thinkers. So I think, does that answer your question or...? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's say uh, someone is looking to start a project and they have the same mindset as they wish to be respectful to nature while, while building it. Mm. Um, if you had to give them one advice, what would it be? Mm. Ha, that's a good one. Well, it could be two. Yeah, 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 yeah. If, if, yeah like this, there's ways, like, like for example, in Fogo, I knew the land really well. And uh, mm-hmm. so I didn't have to ask that many questions about the nature because I knew it. And this, this, is, this is where the nomad thing comes in. But for example, mm-hmm. when I was in Istanbul doing a project, it was a whole new world. So I had to use more time knowing it. Yeah. But I realized maybe I shouldn't be designing in Istanbul. Like let someone else do it a bit better. So but we did a great job. But I'm, I'm, more, I'm more comfortable in my parallel, like my latitude. So yeah. a lot of my projects are in the same latitude, you know, between like 40 degrees to 70 degrees latitude. It was like a thing. But so, but in order to get to know a project really, one of the first things we do is actually we do like a 10 to, 10 to 25 centimeter contour map. We never get maps from the government, like never. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. like half wrong, this. So we do GPS coordinates with a surveyor. That's like, that's like become such a fact in my office. From there, we get a 3D digital model. Then one of the intern makes it, or the, now it's the 3D printer, makes a 3D print of the model. Mm-hmm. So physically, we know the place really well. But then we actually ask the people, the client, if the client grew up in that area, we ask the client like loads and loads of questions. You know, where's the sun come up? Where's it go down? What's the, what's the wind like this time of year? Is there any, like, so there's like, before we design, like, we've got, a lot of thoughts there's this architect one time he he was like it was so obvious why his architecture was bad he goes i don't leave an office in my first meeting without ever having a sketch and it's like yeah you think you know it all that oh. early that's wrong you know it's like going on a first date and saying yeah i'm gonna marry this woman it's like it's like yeah yeah it's before like before meeting her yeah or, <laughs> <laughs> or after the first good feeling thing so it's so like, yeah it, it, I would recommend like before you like start designing, really know the site, really know the culture, like ask a lot of questions. Like you're like you're, you're the, the question you ask the hitchhikers, you know, mm-hmm. tell me something I don't know. And as an architect, if yeah. a lot of architects are too cocky to, to admit that they don't know a lot. They're like, they come in a room and they think they know it all. But I come in a room and say, hey, I don't know anything here. Tell, like, tell me something I don't know. And yeah. you turn your curious eye towards the client and to the land. And by, like after a while, you mm-hmm. get to know it. So um, I think that's my approach to it. Yeah, mm. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. you know, a lot of my clients are world travelers, mm. kind of like global citizens. And when they finally decide to 
stay in one place. They have all these different ideas they've collected over the years from different places and cultures. Yeah. But yeah. then you have to adjust it to the actual place where you want to build your home. Let's say I had a German client in yeah. Thailand and they wanted to do this really catalogy magazine kind of house and it just it wouldn't fit in a tropical yeah, climate. Yeah. It it would be horrible. Yeah, yeah. So you had to kind of like crystallize the ideas and really go through the process of what makes you feel at home yeah. and then adjust it yeah. to the local site-specific, culture-specific land. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a really good point because I, I'm just thinking why my houses got so popular in Bergen. And I think it's because of... Mm -hmm. mm, there's one thing, there, there's, there's actually one of the benefits of being nomadic, an architect, that you can actually bring in something new to a culture, but probably you can't bring in everything new because then it's like you're not listening to you. So like my own house for example it's like it relates very well to the houses from 1930 and 1940 designed by this architect life grown he's like one of norway's best architects he done 36 houses in this little garden um, garden city i live in it's like 70 houses there and so i kind of like i mimicked his but i also saw things that he missed like for example, there was never there was no covered outside spaces, and it rains all the time. Uh, his kitchens were tiny, whereas living rooms were huge. But we don't live like that anymore. So I lived in one of his houses when I was designing my house, and I was like, okay, this is what I take from him, but this is what I'm going to improve on. So my building became like a nomadic hybrid of his Bergen architecture in a way. And then that attracted a lot of clients because they saw things, you know, you know, these covered outside spaces when it rains 250 days a year. It's like really important. Or, yeah, yeah, there's, or, yeah there's like things I did they, they didn't think of because they didn't experience it. Yeah, yeah, you have a fresh perspective, which is really beautiful. Um, okay, so before we end, we live in very interesting times. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, uh, what do you think the post-corona world is going to look like and if it affected your perspective? Mm, I don't know what the post-corona world is going to... I get a feeling what my post-corona world is going to look like in a way because um, I enough. was traveling 120 days. Yeah, I was traveling 120 days a year. And um, wow. yeah, to be honest, I was running away from a few things that mm, I thought it was homesickness. But it was actually something missing in myself that I didn't deal with, uh, which I've like, kind of come to terms with. Uh, by not traveling now, I got really close to my kids. They're like much different relationship to me. Um, like I started gardening. It was like, it was like, I didn't know, like I'm not a great gardener, but I kind of found out I love this. And I never, that was never possible because you couldn't be like watering plants when you're in, you know, you're in Bali or in New Zealand giving a lecture. Sure. Um, so my 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 office has changed because we were zooming all the time and and I like during Corona time we had like freelancers in other countries that weren't getting health benefits if anything happened that really worried me I was like okay I don't want that on my responsibility I'd rather you know they said they had a health insurance and they do but they're not as protected as we are in Norway for that mm -hmm. reason so. I decided like the 1st of October, everyone's coming back to Norway if they want to work from here or we just, uh, 
that's the way we're going. So one of the employees, the new ones just started here and like we're slowly getting people around it. And I think this um, analog connection to feeling emotions in people, mm-hmm. um, like, I, like I missed out on that, like, cause I was having the Zoom calls all the time. And then, you know, I saw people for an hour in their good mood, but I didn't see them when they needed me or I needed them. And so I think my world is, probably will change architecturally and um, and um, there's one thing I noticed about people like I was in an avalanche like five it's been like five years ago now so I used to always go to nature and like nature is always nice to me and it was like solved almost all my problems but nature solved one of my biggest problems it was like it took me in an avalanche in Japan I almost died it was almost like, okay, I'm taking your life if you don't take it seriously. So I had to take my life more seriously. And that's what I'm noticing in Corona time now. Like a, f- a friend of mine said, it, it's like the big elephant in the room. We're all going to die. And like, no, it's like, like half the world didn't realize they're going to die one day. So, but I'm going to end off right now. But it's really <laughs> funny. When I went to India in year 2000, I came back after three months changed. But it didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. It like three months later, I was doing the same shit again. So yeah. this is one thing I'm worried about is the corona helps for a while, but human nature, we forget, we avoid pain, and we go to comfort. So, but I think in, in, in the larger picture, I think we learned a lot about the value of friendships, the value of physical connections. Mm-hmm. Human connection. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What did you learn? living a nomadic lifestyle as a nomad. I feel like I almost had a preview of this time mm. because now a lot of people are working remotely. Yeah. And then when you can like separate the connection between the city and your work, then a lot of people for the first time in their life, they have the freedom to choose. Okay, so where do I want to live yep. if I don't have to go to the office every day? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Mm. That's like, yeah, so yeah, I experienced yeah. this this question for the past three years i was like okay i go between city and nature i crave the urban and the the culture and museums and then i have to go somewhere really rural but then the one thing that i learned is Mm. that i need community Mm. like i can't live by myself in nature i need (laughs) people around me (laughs) so this is like my i guess uh, message for the newfound freedom of um, remote workers it's like don't only seek freedom seek connection Which is major for me. I think that's a really good point because, um, yeah, like I think, like for rural communities where people were disappearing now, like a lot of New Yorkers realize, what the hell am I living here for? It's like twenty times as expensive as upstate New York, and you know I can be living up there, more freedom. I can be gardening. I can have a community. Fresh air, yeah. Which I don't, because a lot of people are mistaking their community, like the social network community, that's, that, it's a community on a certain level, but it doesn't have deep roots. So mm-hmm. that gets a bit scary, you know, like, you know, 1500 people liking your photo on Instagram. Yeah. If that starts filling a void, then it's a, then you're, you know, some bells should go off, your need for contact. But those people on your Instagram, they don't give a shit really, like they're not there for mm-hmm. you. So you're right, like, that was a good thing you noticed, you need community, but, like, don't mistake it for, 
trying to yeah like yeah maybe it could yeah. be a virtual community i'm not so sure that's like time will tell so no it yeah. could be both you know it could be a physical one a virtual one yeah um just anything that supports you yeah i think the virtual one is great for me because like i live in a smaller country and there's not that access to many like that type of people so that helps to a certain level but only to a certain level yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like uh, another thing I learned uh, really quickly is that um, you know during the the time of the lockdown, I were I was able to attend uh, conferences in Finland. Yeah, I've connected with uh, twelve entrepreneur women from around the world, so we wow. would have weekly meetings and mastermind, and kind of like brainstorm each other's businesses to help. Like <laughs> one for Bali, another one for Singapore, another one for Australia, and I was like, it was mind blowing. It's like seriously one of the best things that happened to me. <laughs> just because we were all seeking connection yeah that's actually and probably happened because you're open to globalism and probably happened because you have more time so those things there so it's like uh, yeah both of them are true like the, your attitude towards globalism positive and then the corona created more time and then maybe more of a need to connect so that was uh, yeah that was a good outcome. It's not so bad. Not so bad at all. <laughs> okay, so I have uh, one last question that I ask uh, all of my guests. Yep. Um, okay, so you have to keep a very open mind for this one. Okay? Yeah. This qu question is called the wild napkin. Wild napkin? Yeah, wild napkin. So you're going to a bar. I know you don't drink anymore, but let's say you do. <laughs> I'm in bars all the time. And you have a couple of yeah. drinks, a couple of uh, uh, chamomile tea, <laughs> and your mind is very, very free, and you're so relaxed. And then um, all of a sudden, you have the craziest idea, but you don't have your uh, sketchbook with you. So you take a napkin and you write it down. What would it be? So there is no time and no money limit. It could be anything. Mm, this is now. This is now. Hmm, maybe it's kind of now. Do you know the watch mm. that it says now, 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 yeah. now, instead of one, two, three, four, five? That's <laughs> <laughs> a hard one to do because your mind is always wanting to wander some other, some other place. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a lot of thoughts going on in my mind right now. I would, um, I usually with people smarter than me, so I'd actually would turn to them and then give them. Ask them to remember it. <laughs> <Instead of writing. laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> no, it's not yeah. about this. Because my yeah. mind, and, and one hour later, my mind's another place, and I'd probably forget it. But it, it's a good oh, idea. Oh, I bet to write you have down. thousands of ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bet you have thousands yeah. of them. Yeah. But then, like, just a, I don't know, just a crazy idea. You had a crazy thought, a crazy wish. What is the crazy wish? Yeah. Is that what you're asking, or? Like you have. You have a lot of time, you have a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Ah, there's a, something I read about the other day. It really freaked me out. It was, um, there's a word in Japanese. It's the feeling you get when somebody comes up to you and says, I'm going to take all responsibility for you. Um, that would be kind of a wish, like, like running an architecture business and building it up and all that is kind of, you're on all the time and your, your motor is going constantly. And that feeling of just 100% letting go and lying in a float tank or just, I think 
And like I think not a lot of listeners will understand out there, but a lot of people running like like one person running a large architecture office or something like that. There's like I bet you they could relate to that word, whatever that Japanese word is. Like the wish that someone would just say, "Okay, I'm going to take responsibility for like three months. Just like do whatever you want to." Wow. But that is actually your own responsibility to do. So that's where the the, <laughs> the the trick of finding the great the great place in life via architecture that it feels right. Yeah. That's where I'm moving towards. And I, I kind of almost there now. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know the word in Japanese. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a beautiful answer. No, it's a beautiful answer. I, I'm going to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just, it means, it really focuses on the balance, right? The life-work balance. Somebody taught us that we have to work really hard and that will make us happy. But actually, we would like to have free time and some free space in our mind to mm. get bored or just, I don't know, look at the trees from time to time and not be so busy and achieving. Yeah, I mentioned at the beginning there, when I was younger, the only commodity I had was time. Yeah. Now I, that gets taken away from you sometimes. So it's just, how do you get that back in balance? And then you're like the flow. But luckily, architecture, you can do to your 90, 95. Like, look at Oscar Niemann. So we got, you know, we're not under pressure to get like airplane pilots to get really good. And then 62, it's all over. We're like... The older you get, the the nicer it gets in this profession, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a good answer. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. And uh, I want to thank you again for taking the time and being my guest. Thank you, Adi. Yep. I'm going to share the links to your website. Mm. And, and I want to thank our listeners for your emails and messages. It means a lot to me. Uh, keep sending them. And until the next time, mm. go out and talk to strangers. <laughs> okay. Okay. Take care, Adi. Okay. Bye.